You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Welcome to the course on the Old Testament for the International Catholic University. I am Father Kenneth Baker. I'm the editor of the Homiletic and Pastoral Review, which is a monthly magazine for the Catholic clergy. And I have been teaching the Bible for many years. And a few years ago, it turned out a book called Inside the Bible, going through all the books of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so Dr. McInerney asked me if I would present this course on the Old Testament for the International Catholic University. I'm very happy to do that. During this course, we're going to cover the 46 books of the Old Testament. The angle that I take on these books is to try and get at what the basic theme or idea is in each one of the books. And so for meaning and for understanding, there won't be a lot of exegesis or talking about various Hebrew roots and things like that, or especially the source criticism. A great deal of the source criticism I'm going to leave out of this because I want to get at what the meaning of the book is. And there are certain themes that run through the Old Testament. If a person is a regular reader of the Old Testament, you come to see that certain ideas in the Old Testament recur over and over again. The basic part of the Old Testament is the first five books, which is called the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the basis of the whole Bible, because the historical books which come after that are a living out on the part of the Hebrew people and later the Israelites of the covenant arrangement that they made with the Lord Yahweh. And the wisdom literature is a reflection on that of the wise man who lives according to the Torah or the law of God. So some of the themes that we're going to touch on in this course is the fact of that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, and he is the master of human history. One of the geniuses of the Jewish people and the Hebrew people is to see that God's activity permeates human history. And so we see that when um, the Israelites fail to be obedient to the covenant, God makes use of external forces like the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Greeks and the Romans and things like this in order to punish Israel. He doesn't send them a bolt of lightning from out of the sky, but he uses secondary causes. There's the notion of the covenant. We refer to the Bible as the, like the Old Testament and the New Testament. That idea of testament means covenant. It means an agreement. It's kind of like, in modern terms, like a contract almost between God and his people. Both sides are obligated to do certain things. The Israelites are required to obey the Ten Commandments, especially the First Commandment. The First Commandment is the most important. That is, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only, and not any other gods. And as we know from reading the Old Testament, the Israelites failed on that over and over again. So that's a key notion. Another key notion is that sin running through the Bible, which means rebellion against God 
and rebellion against God's law. And one of the consequences of that is then being separated from God and being punished by him. We see that in the case of Adam and Eve, for example, who sinned against the Lord and were expelled from the Garden of Eden. And likewise, the Jewish people who worshiped idols instead of the true God were punished by God over and over again in order to purify them, not to obliterate them, but to bring them back to the practice of their religion that they had committed themselves to. Another idea is the temple. You might not be aware of the fact of the importance of the temple, but the temple runs through most of the Old Testament. And the idea of the temple is because that's God's presence with his people. We have that when we sing at Christmas time, the songs about Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. And so God is with his people. And that the place where that is the temple, especially the temple in Jerusalem. Another idea then is that God is going to send a Messiah, the Christ, who's going to come to redeem his people. So there's this notion of messianism that runs through many parts of the Old Testament. We're going to touch on that also. Promise and fulfillment is another combination. That is, we find a lot of promises from God and then they are fulfilled. And the prophets use this as a test of a true prophet as opposed to a false prophet. A true prophet is one who prophesies that Jerusalem is going to fall to the Babylonians. The false prophets denied that. And the test of a true prophet is whether or not the prophecy comes true. Finally, the response of the Bible that God wants from those who read his word and from those who received his revelation is faith. That is, acceptance of God, obedience to his law, and trust in him and following his will. So that's the human response. And we see that to a great extent in the Psalms, for example, of praise of God, of thanksgiving, of lamentation, and so forth in the Psalms. These various moods, all the human emotions that are expressed in the Psalms, we're going to see that when we cover the Psalms. So for this first lesson then, for the first class, I want to cover the first three books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. So on the book of Genesis, the word Genesis means origins. So this is the book of the origins of the world, of the universe, of man, and of the animals and the plants and everything here, that they're all created by the Lord God because of his goodness. And this is a theme that comes out that God created everything because of his goodness. He wanted to share his goodness with others. Because of that, he created the universe. He's the master of all the universe. And in the, in the Bible, the prophets especially, we see over and over again that the idols of the pagans are not gods. They say they have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have feet and they can't walk and so forth because they are creations of man. There's only one God and that's the God of Israel who's manifested himself to Israel. He's this with the idea of revealing. He's revealed himself to Israel and, but there's a universality here in the sense that his revelation is intended not just for Israel, but through Israel to all mankind, to all the world, to God's saving revelation eventually in Jesus Christ. So now the book of Genesis, it has 50 chapters and the first 11 chapters have to do with the origin of the world. And God creates everything, as I mentioned, and Adam and Eve, and he puts them in the garden but they sin, 
And that's a crucial thing. They sin, and as a result of their sin, their disobedience to God, whatever it was, manifested by eating the fruit of the tree, they are expelled from the Garden of Eden, and they are condemned then to work and to sweat in order to support themselves. And they're also condemned to die, which was not originally intended that they should die. These are the consequences of sin. And we see in the Bible, subsequently, the consequences of sin that permeates the subsequent history. But God has a promise. He makes a promise to them that he will support them and he will send someone who will redeem them. We find that in Genesis 3.15, which is called the Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel of the one who will come and the woman will crush the head of the serpent and so forth. And then you have the genealogies there, and then Noah, so that the people fall away from God, and so God saves them, Noah, in the ark. That takes place in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. The promise here with regard to Adam and Eve is that his progeny will survive. And so he saves Noah. There are eight souls that are saved by Noah. Subsequently, the Lord, when they multiply, the Lord reveals himself to Abraham. And so the history of Israel really begins with Abraham in chapter 12 of the book of Genesis, of Ur of the Chaldees, and that's actually in present-day Iraq, over there by the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. So Abraham is called by God for a special mission, and he leaves his family and so forth, and he starts wandering, and he ends up over in the present-day Palestine, and he ends up down in Egypt at one time. But what's crucial about Abraham is that God promised him that he would be the father of many nations. His name originally, as you'll notice in the Bible, is Abram, and then God changes his name, which is an indication of his function in salvation history. He changes his name to Abraham, which means the father of many peoples, of many nations. Abraham is distinguished for his obedience. God tested him. He told him he'd be the father of many nations, but he had only one son late in his life, Isaac. Then God tells him to sacrifice Isaac in chapter 22. He proceeds to do that. He takes his son Isaac and some wood up on Mount Moriah, which as far as we know is the site of the temple where the mosque of Omar is at the present time in Jerusalem. It was on that hill, that's Mount Moriah. And there he attempts to sacrifice his son in obedience to God, and at the last moment the angel stops him, and God provides him with an animal instead of his son. And all of these things are, in their own way, types of Christ. That is, Isaac carrying the wood up the mountain is like Jesus carrying his cross to Calvary, and Isaac is the only son that Abraham is asked to sacrifice, and Jesus is the only son of the Father who sacrificed for us and for our salvation. Isaac, then, is the one who carries on the promise of God to Abraham that he'd have many children. He has two children, Jacob and Esau. And then there's conflict between these two brothers, these twin brothers. Finally, Jacob wins out. There's not very much in the Old Testament, only a couple of chapters, 25, 26, with regard to Isaac. Then Jacob comes on the scene. He goes to visit his relative Laban, and there he gets his two wives and their two slaves. And from these four women, he has 12 children. And there you have the beginnings of the 12 tribes of Israel. That takes place between 
chapters 27 and 37 in the book of Genesis. And then one of the most beautiful stories in the Old Testament is from chapter 37 to 47. That's the story of Joseph, of God's providence. His brothers are envious of Joseph, so they sell him into slavery. He goes down into Egypt there by reason of God's favor. He interprets the dream of the Pharaoh and eventually becomes the number two man in Egypt. And he stores up lots of food. When his family is starving up in Palestine, they go down there and he provides them with food. And so this explains how the Israelites ended up in Egypt, which prepares us for the book of Exodus of Moses and the liberation. So they were in Egypt for 430 years until Moses came on the scene and was raised up by God to liberate them. So the book of Genesis then has to do with the origins of the Jewish people. The beginning of the Hebrew people takes place through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then this Joseph story of 10 chapters in Genesis. So the key thing here is promise and fulfillment. God promised Abraham that he would have many children, as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. It has an innumerable number of descendants. So that is partially fulfilled in the Hebrew people and the Jewish people. It's completely fulfilled in all of those who come in the church, who are Christians, who believe in Jesus Christ. We're all, in that sense, children of Abraham. Abraham, as we have in the liturgy, is our father in faith. So this takes us in time frame from around the year 1800 before Christ up to around 1300, 1290, which is the time of Moses and the Exodus leading them out from Egypt out into the desert. One of the characteristics of God in Genesis is that God is totally transcendent. He's above this world. He's not incorporated into this world. He's not imminent in the world, but he has concern and love for his people. He protects them and he corrects them in their errors and so forth, but he guides them in his providence. And so he takes care of them through Joseph when they are starving up in Palestine. And because of that, then they go into Egypt and they multiply and become a huge number of people in Egypt. That's kind of like the book of Genesis. Let's move on to the book of Exodus. There's a famous movie about the liberation of the Hebrew people under the slavery of Pharaoh. So after 430 years, the Hebrews have been enslaved by Pharaoh and God raises up Moses and Moses defends his people and kills somebody who is molesting one of the Hebrews. And for that, he has to flee. When he's about age 40, he goes out into the desert and there God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush. It's the famous burning bush. He sees the bush burning, but it's not consumed. And he goes over there and he hears a voice which tells him to take off his shoes as he approaches this because it's holy ground. So Moses goes and God reveals himself and tells him he's to go to Pharaoh and tell the Pharaoh to let his people go. And one of the very important passages in this book is the manifestation of God to Moses. Moses says, well, if I go, who shall I say sent me? He says, what's your name? And the Lord says, you tell them, I am who am is the one that sent you. So the definition in the Bible of God is in terms of being. God is, I am. And that's manifested in the Hebrew word Yahweh, which means I am or he who is, of which we translate in English, we use the word Lord for that. We can Lord or Yahweh 
that means the same thing. So Moses is empowered by God then to go and confront Pharaoh with the assistance of his brother Aaron, who becomes head of the priestly caste in the history of Israel. They go to Pharaoh and try to get him to let the people go out in the desert to worship the Lord, and Pharaoh refuses. So Moses invokes the Lord, and they send the ten pestilences on Egypt until finally the, the last one, the number ten, is when the firstborn of all the Egyptians, both of animals and of human beings, are slain by the Lord because the Lord is punishing them of what they've done to the Hebrews, and they won't let the Hebrews go. So finally, Pharaoh relents and lets them go. They go out into the desert, and they go to Mount Sinai, and their God reveals the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai to Moses. And Moses brings these to the people. He makes a covenant. This is the beginning of covenant, which means which we have a testament, this agreement. God binds himself to do certain things for the Hebrew people, but they must abide by the covenant. And the terms, like if you make a contract to buy something, a house or a car, the terms here are the Ten Commandments. And especially the first commandment, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt not have strange gods before me, that they must worship only the Lord God and none of the gods of the Egyptians or the Palestinians or the Philistines or anything like that, but only the Lord God. That's crucial in all of this. Then the Lord sends them up to occupy the land because he had promised them the promised land. But they refuse to go. They're afraid of the people that are there. Only Joshua and Caleb say, let's go, we can conquer it. But the others are terrified by the Philistines. They're bigger and stronger and they have cities and so forth. And so they hesitate to go. And because of this, then they go down in the southern part of Israel, down near Arabia at the present time. And they're in a place called Kadesh for 38 years. And it's during this time that God feeds his people with the manna of the desert and the quail and so forth. Until that generation had died, a new generation comes along and Joshua and Caleb survive, they're the ones then are chosen by God to lead the people. After 38 years, they eventually break camp and they leave the southern part and they head north up beyond the Dead Sea and up to the other side of the Jordan River opposite Jericho. And Moses then is the leader during this time, but while they're out in the desert, Moses has a fault. If it's not too clear exactly what the fault is, it seems that in striking the rock two times to get the water rather than just commanding the water that Moses sinned and God said to Moses that he could not enter into the promised land. He could see it. So he went up on Mount Nebo and he was able to see the promised land, but he was not able to enter it. Joshua is the one chosen by God to lead the chosen people across the Jordan River into what we call present-day Israel, Palestine, and occupy the land. Then finally, there's a kind of a testament of Moses at the end. He gets prepared after he goes up on Mount Nebo and he sees Palestine. Then he dies after that and Joshua takes over. Now, key things to look for when you're studying the book of Exodus is the notion of liberation. Liberation, that the people are liberated from the power of Pharaoh, of the false gods of the Egyptians, and they're made free to go out into the desert to worship the true God. It's not a political thing. Often it's presently that liberation, that exodus is understood in political terms. That's not the point. They're liberated from 
the pagans of the Egyptians so they can go out into the desert and worship the true God and enter into the promised land that God promised them. That's crucial in the book of Exodus. Also the notion of the covenant, of making this agreement that they are God's people. They're the chosen people. He promises his guidance and his protection. He protects them and he assists them in many different ways in order to overcome their enemies. They defeat various armies, Moab and Og and so forth, and various battles that they get involved in. So God protects them. So those things we want to watch for in Exodus is the notion of liberation and of covenant. And another one too is the fact that God reveals himself personally to Moses and he gives his definition that I am who am, that being is the very nature of God. So those are very important points with regard to the book of Exodus. So that takes us now, once they start moving away from Kadesh down south from Exodus, a part of this is God reveals to them then at Mount Sinai how he wants to be worshipped. And this gives us the book of Leviticus, the emphasis here that thou shalt be holy. In 19.2 the Lord says, you shall be holy for I the Lord your God am holy. And this book of Leviticus comes originally from Moses, probably reached the state in which we now have it, probably around after the uh, Babylonian captivity, maybe 500, 450, something like that. But the book of Leviticus is the main liturgical book of the Old Testament. It describes how God wants to be worshipped with various kinds of sacrifices, that is, the Holocaust, which means that everything is consumed, and various other kinds of peace offerings, guilt offerings, and sin offerings. You know, they slaughtered a lot of animals. And in those kinds of sacrifices, a certain amount was dedicated to God. The rest of it went to the priests, the Levites, and so forth. They could feed their people with that. But the key notion in Leviticus is the notion of the holiness of God. That you must be a holy people because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Holy means to be separate from what is profane. So you know that the Hebrew people did not associate with the other tribes around them because these other tribes were involved in false worship of idols and their own false gods. Therefore, they were not allowed to have anything to do with that. The tabernacle that is established in the desert is very important. That's described in the book of Exodus, how they are to build the tabernacle and it's a movable thing, it's like a tent, how they build that and take it with them. So that's a very important point here because it designates where God is present with his people. And two of the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, who did not worship God in the proper way are struck dead. So this is an indication of the importance of the proper way in which to worship God. In chapters 11 to 15 in Leviticus, you have the certain laws of purity, of washing the hand, washing the body, and washing various utensils that they use for food and so forth, and how to bury the dead and things like that is covered. The holiness code, which designates the rules and the conduct of the people, what they are to do and what they're not to do, is in chapters 17 to 26. And this holiness here has the meaning of otherness, distinctiveness, and separation from all that is ordinary or profane. So God then 
is the one who's primarily holy, for he's transcendent and totally other. And so it's communion with God in the Sinai covenant that makes God's people holy. And now we, that's why we refer to that area over there as the Holy Land, because that's where God manifested himself to his people, and that's where he established a holy people that have a special mission in world history. That is, this people is to be the means through which God manifests himself to all mankind. The savior of the world is to come through these people, these Hebrew people. Eventually, they're looking forward to the savior, the Messiah. The Messiah means the Christ, which means the anointed one. And he is to come through these people. This goes all the way back to Abraham, from Abraham down to Christ. There is consistency in this whole history. And the Levites and the priests have to do with the temple and the worship and taking care of that aspect of Israel that concerns the presence of God in their midst and the proper way to worship God. So they had all these various kinds of sacrifices. When Christ offered himself for our salvation on the cross, there are a lot of similarities there to the things that took place in the Old Testament and the book of Leviticus. And finally, in these various talks, where I hope to link up the Old Testament to the New Testament wherever possible, here, let me mention finally that in the book of Leviticus, if you want to understand the book of Hebrews, which is a very profound book in the New Testament about the high priesthood of Christ, St. Paul, the author of the book of Hebrews, makes constant reference to the book of Leviticus of the various kinds of sacrifices, the Holocaust, the blood offerings, the guilt offerings, the priest, the high priest, and so forth, that Christ is a high priest along those lines that were designated for the chosen people in the book of Leviticus by God as he revealed to them how he wanted to be worshiped. So that is an extremely important point of the book of Leviticus. It's often very boring for us to read that with all the liturgical directions. Then those things that had to do with the liturgy in the Old Testament, they're all bypassed by Christ, not the Ten Commandments, but those things were temporary for the Jewish people when they were out in the desert. So that's an important point to remember here with regard to the Holiness Code and the book of Leviticus, and especially that the final point is that in order to be able to understand what the book of Hebrews is all about, it's important to have a good understanding of the book of Leviticus, and that's one of the fruits of the study of the book of Leviticus. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.